Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of the CCRN Review, where today we are going to be talking about cardiomyopathy. So thank you to all of those that have been in prior episodes, have listened to prior episodes. Thank you so much for coming back for another. And for those of you that are new, welcome. We are so happy to have you joining in and listening along with everybody. Just a couple of things before we get underway. I'd like you to uh, head on over to my website. The link is below in this podcast description. It's khoppypresents.com, where you'll find a listing of all of the podcast episodes, as well as upcoming plans. And this is also where you'll find a list of courses that I have to offer. If you or your facility would like to have them brought to you either remotely or in person, I do several courses. um, So take a look at that. I also... About six weeks ago, I started a Facebook page and we've been having a lot of fun with it. We've been doing a CCRN question of the day challenge. So we are on question 42 as of today. And so it's kind of fun. In the morning, you pick up your CCRN question, you think about it, and I come back with the answer in the comment section later on in the day. So I've had quite a few people comment that that's been a lot of fun as well. I will be having my online CCRN review available for purchase in September, so stay tuned for that. It'll be announced in my podcasts as well as on my Facebook page, which is at Presents, and um, it will be, like I said, available in August for your purchase, and it's going to be an accredited program. Um, so that's it. That's all I have to, to, uh, start out with. So let's get underway talking a bit about cardiomyopathy. So when you look at cardiomyopathy, you're really looking at three different types. You have dilated cardiomyopathy, you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and you have restrictive cardiomyopathy. So where we're starting today is with the most common and that is dilated cardiomyopathy. And that's where the structure and shape of the left ventricle changes. We have this dilation of the left ventricle, kind of a remodeling and restructuring of the ventricle, which ultimately causes it to be not so effective in terms of contractility. 
So, you know, when you think about cardiomyopathy, the dilated one now is what we're talking about. You can see that in patients with ischemic heart disease. And the problem with a ventricle that becomes dilated is that in between individual myocytes, especially in patients post-myocardial infarction, we can find a lot of collagen formation. And when collagen uh, is placed in between individual myocytes, we wind up with a ventricle that's very stiff and non-compliant. So it's big, it's remodeled, it's stiff and non-compliant, and so the contractility is decreased. Now, what kinds of things can cause cardiomyopathy? Well, again, we're focusing on the dilated uh, type. It can be idiopathic, so not really sure. Uh, Infectious, like uh, Coxsackie B virus. It can be a toxin. And by the way, alcohol is a very common cause of dilated cardiomyopathy. It can also be related to a variety of electrolyte, vitamin, or overall nutrient deficiencies, things like hypokalemia, chronic hypocalcemia, hypophosphatemia, thiamine deficiency, which is a huge problem, as you know, in patients with chronic alcoholism. There is also a dilated cardiomyopathy associated with pregnancy, and sometimes we see it in neuro, neuromuscular disorders like muscular dystrophy and myasthenia gravis. We can also see it in connective tissue disorders like lupus, scleroderma, uh, as well as rheumatoid arthritis. May also be present in infiltrative disorders such as sarcoidosis and amyloidosis. So those are some examples of etiologies for dilated cardiomyopathy. Now, these patients will present weak and fatigued. And of course, it kind of all starts out and it kind of ties together with that decrease in exercise tolerance, chest pain, palpitations. They may have bouts of syncope related to poor cardiac output and they have signs and symptoms of heart failure. So when we assess these folks, we can see orthostatic blood pressure changes. Uh, Because of that big old dilated ventricle, we might hear a systolic murmur of mitral or perhaps tricuspid regurge. Now remember when we went over valvular disorders, we said that if a ventricle becomes engorged with fluid, it pulls on the annulus of the valve, which is kind of the ring, the ring around the mitral valve, which basically is kind of the place where, or or the, the stronghold, the anchor, if you will, for the leaflets of the mitral valve. So if what we're seeing then that this patient goes on to develop a murmur that gets louder when they're in acute failure, It is because as the failure gets worse, the annulus of the valve, the ring around the mitral valve is dilated and the valve leaflets cannot approximate and close normally. And so remember, you know, the mitral valve is really supposed to be closed during ventricular systole. And when the leaflets can't come together and the mitral valve can't close, you're going to have a systolic murmur. 
And as we said in the assessment section, we always know a systolic murmur by timing, right? We know it by timing. So we said, if you're listening to a heart that sounds like it's a mess, just put your fingers on the patient's carotid and just kind of listen to when you hear that murmur best and when, and when, and if it associates with the carotid pulsation. So if the murmur that you're hearing correlates with the carotid upstroke or the carotid pulsation, you know, it's a systolic murmur. So what we hear is stub, 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 stub. Also, we can hear crackles. And by the way, let me just back up a second and say that technically, physiologically, an S3 is going to come before crackles. And I hope that makes sense to you because the ventricle is going to become dilated and non-compliant first before blood and pressure backs up into the lungs, resulting in crackles. So I do distinctly remember that as a CCRN question, which of the following signs and signs and symptoms would occur first in a patient with impending pulmonary edema? And they say things like um, drop in pulse ox and bibasilar crackles and, uh, you know, uh, hypoxia on the ABG. And then they say S3. Well, the S3 or the non-compliant sound of the ventricles is going to come first before we hear um, crackles. And remember, S3 is a diastolic sound, guys, and it represents the time when the atria are just kind of offloading a huge amount of volume down into the ventricles and you wind up with an S3 because the ventricles dilated. It also can't take on this big, huge volume. And so you hear a vibratory sound. Now in the absence of atrial fib, you might even hear an S4 and S4 is when the atria contract and try to stuff that last 30% of ventricular filling down into the ventricles. And again, because of ventricular noncompliance, you can hear an S4. Now, remember we discussed with valve defects and we also discussed it back in the heart tones, um, um, podcast that you would not hear an S4 in atrial fibrillation. And the reason for that is in atrial fibrillation, we don't have uniform atrial contraction. And so therefore you can't have an S4 because S4 is produced by atrial contraction, forcing fluid down into a non-compliant ventricle. Now, in terms of other findings, we'll see a displaced PMI. And maybe it's even better for me to say, we'll feel a displaced PMI because the point of maximal impulse is something that you assess upon palpation. Remember again, from the assessment section that the PMI is shaped like about between a quarter and a half dollar in circumference. And it is found at the fifth intercostal space left mid clavicular line. And really what it represents is, is it represents the apex of the heart hitting up against the chest wall. 
So if you have this big old engorged, enlarged left ventricle, that is going to force then the PMI downward and laterally. So we will see that the PMI is displaced. So those are our signs and symptoms of left-sided heart failure. Whereas over on the right side, we can assess the systemic backup of volume. So then we look for right-sided heart failure symptoms, which include things like JVD, jugular venous distension. Remember that in a 30 to 45 degree body position, head of bed body position, we should normally only see the jugular vein about a finger breadth above the clavicle. So anything above that is considered jugular vein distension. And that is a clinical indicator for right-sided heart failure, along with peripheral edema, as well as a big old engorged liver. And that's where we assess for hepatomegaly. And this reflex is called the HJR, and that is the hepatojugular reflux. And this is assessed on deep palpation where we're pressing downward and we're sliding our fingers a little bit upward under the right costal margin in order to put some pressure, some deep pressure on the liver. And we know somebody has a positive HJR when... We place that pressure on the liver, again, deep palpation, not light palpation, deep palpation, and we see that the jugular veins become engorged. So that is considered to be positive HJR, and it's a clinical indicator of backup of fluid and pressure from the right ventricle into the liver, causing the liver to become engorged and giving us that hepatojugular reflux sign. We'll have other signs to go with it, right? When you have this big old engorged liver, your liver is going to have trouble metabolizing drugs. We need to be all over that. We need to know that this patient's not going to be able to metabolize drugs normally. We also know that this patient with a big old engorged liver it might transmit over to the spleen. And so we have hepatosplenomegaly. We also know that as the liver becomes engorged and it loses some of its functions because it's full of fluid, we can also see problems with um, breakdown of red blood cells. And we know that normally, you know, the, the liver and the spleen are both parts of the reticuloendothelial system. So that as the red blood cells kind of end their life at about 120 days, it's really the liver and the spleen that take the red blood cell and break it down. The bile is taken out and excuse me, the bilirubin is taken out, sent over in the form of bile to the gallbladder for storage. And so that's why we can see in patients with severe right-sided heart failure, we can see that those patients can become jaundice. So our management, our management always starts out with the same thing, does it not? Assessing for airway, breathing, and oxygenation. And then we're going to treat the patient as if they have heart failure because that's what we're looking at here, guys. So does the patient need to be tubed? 
put on a ventilator in order to assist breathing? Can we get away with a BiPAP trial so that maybe we don't have to intubate the patient and put them on a ventilator? So that's all part of our initial airway breathing and oxygenation um, kind of uh, triage. Also, ACE inhibitors. So ACE inhibitors, we use those for both preload and afterload reduction. Now, that would be kind of an, an, an ongoing thing. So uh, in terms of somebody coming in with acute heart failure related to dilated cardiomyopathy, things like ACE inhibitors and beta blockers would not be the first thing out of the chute. Although in maintenance therapy, we use ACE inhibitors. We also use beta blockers like metoprolol, or sometimes we incorporate combined alpha and beta blockers. Carvedilol is a, a key player there because of their ability to reduce catecholamines. That's really nice. So when you can reduce catecholamine and take that catecholamine workload off the heart, survival is better. But ACE inhibitors, as I said before, and beta blockers, they're going to be used for long-term maintenance therapy. We've got to get in there right away and unload that ventricle. Now, what does that look like? Well, that looks like diuretics, of course, loop diuretics, preferably, so we're talking about things like Lasix and Bumex, also vasodilators, if the patient's blood pressure would be able to support that. The benefit of using vasodilators, and you know what, guys, I could probably even throw morphine into that because both the nitrates like IV nitroglycerin and morphine are going to dilate the venous capacitance beds. And whenever you can dilate the venous capacitance circuit, you're able to displace volume away from that very congested heart. You know, sometimes in my classes, I say to people, I know it sounds like a ridiculous question, but I do ask people, if you had to leave here today and you could leave either with your arteries or your veins, but you couldn't leave with both and your primary goal is to walk out of the room with the most circulating volume, which would you leave with? Would you leave with your arteries or your veins? Think about that for a moment. Well, guys, I'm hoping you said veins because 60, 65% of your circulating volume is venous. So anytime we can take a vein and make it bigger out in the periphery, that can pull fluid away from that congested heart. Now, again, as I said, this is all really variable depending upon the patient's blood pressure, right? Maybe we need to throw in an inotrope along with that in order to help with contractility. That's very common as well, getting an inotrope on board. And probably one of the most common inotropes that we throw into our treatment regime is dobutamine. Dobutamine is a pure beta agent. We're going to get some good kick out of that. And if that doesn't work, sometimes we have to incorporate other types of inotropes like milrinone, for example, which is also known as Primacor. Both of those drugs are going to give us enhanced contractility as well as some vasodilation. However, we always have to be concerned about blood pressure. 
We are going to use antiarrhythmics. You know, if this patient is in atrial fibrillation, is the atrial fibrillation chronic? Very commonly it is in patients with cardiomyopathy and mitral regurge. Very commonly it is. Is it something we can correct? Is it something that we can't correct? If we can't correct it, we have to move on and deal with it. And the dealing with it part has to do with anticoagulation. So not only are we going to use anticoagulation in these patients if they're in atrial fibrillation, but we're also going to bring anticoagulation into the picture if the patient has an EF less than 30%. Because if the patient has an EF less than 30%, they are a sitting duck for thrombi mural thrombi that attach to the inner surface of the endocardium. And you know what happens when a thrombus attaches to the endocardial surface. If a piece of that breaks off, it's going from the left ventricle out the aortic valve into the aorta up to the brain. Now you're caring for a patient that has a stroke. We're also going to be all over ventricular arrhythmias. So very common for this patient population to have issues with ventricular arrhythmias. And so we employ drugs such as amiodarone to deal with that. Sometimes we have to even insert an ICD in order to be able to shock the patient out of a lethal rhythm. One of the things that we also incorporate in order to improve cardiac output is cardiac resynchronization therapy cardiac resynchronization therapy. And this is what we talked about in our pacemaker pearls episode, but just to kind of do a a quick recap here. When we talk about cardiac resynchronization therapy, we're talking about biventricular or bi V pacing, where we are pacing both ventricles at the same time in order to get a good cardiac output. Because the problem is, is as that left ventricle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the ventricles get their impulse and contract in a very sloppy, floppy manner and cardiac output becomes very poor. So if we can get those ventricles to both receive an impulse and contract on time, we can improve cardiac output. And that's why it is that patients that are candidates for cardiac resynchronization therapy are patients that have a big, huge left bundle branch block where we can see that those ventricles are certainly not getting impulses at the same time and cardiac output is compromised. Activity restriction, sodium restriction, and certainly anxiolytics can be a part of this treatment regime as well. The next type of cardiomyopathy that we're going to be talking about is hypertrophic. Now, when we talk about hypertrophic, we're talking about hypertrophy of the interventricular septum, perhaps, as well as the free wall of the left ventricle. So it's really broken down into two types. We have the non-obstructive And that typically is just the left ventricular free wall that's hypertrophied. 
Whereas obstructive is where we have hypertrophy of both the left ventricular free well, free wall, as well as the interventricular septum. Now, most of the time, this is a genetic, genetically transmitted thing. It's an autosomal dominant trait. So genetics, idiopathic, we do see it in some neuromuscular disorders as well. Now, this is the type of cardiomyopathy that we sometimes only discover when the person has cardiac arrest. For example, the basketball player who's out on the court and winds up just having cardiac arrest on the basketball court. So let's just think about this anatomically for a moment, and that will make both our subjective and objective signs and symptoms really make a lot of sense to us. So you've got this, picture this, this big old hypertrophied interventricular septum. You also have this big old hypertrophied left ventricle. Can you understand then that every time the ventricle contracts, there is that outflow obstruction, or I should say the potential for outflow obstruction as that big uh, hypertrophied septum actually obstructs outward flow into the aorta. So it's no wonder these patients present with dyspnea, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, anything that puts an increased workload on the heart can actually increase the obstruction to outflow. These patients can come in with chest pain, palpitations, as well as syncope. So we may see then on our physical exam that the PMI is displaced laterally. The patient can have crackles because if blood can't get out into the aorta, it's going to regurge back and find itself in the pulmonary circuit. So crackles, S4, a systolic ejection murmur. That is an outflow obstruction type of murmur. Loudest at the left sternal border, and it actually will increase with Valselva maneuver and it decreases with squatting. Now, this the patient will also have a murmur of mitral regurgitation. And we talked about that before. It's holosystolic, it's blowing, so it is heard between lub and dub. And of course, it's reflective of blood not making its way out of the aorta across the across the aortic valve as it should due to obstruction but rather it's backing up from the left ventricle into the left atrium causing that mitral regurge murmur with every systole we can hear that uh, murmur loudest at the apex with radiation to the axillary area now Our treatment is different here in many ways, but then again, there are similarities. So let's take a look at this. First of all, we want to do whatever we can in order to prevent the outflow obstruction. And we said the outflow obstruction is when there's a lot of cardiac work, right? A lot of stress put on the heart. So drugs like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, are used to prevent outflow obstruction. 
Now, what we should avoid in patients like this is we should avoid inotropes, right? Because the inotrope is going to increase the cardiac work, increase contractility, and therefore potentially increase outflow obstruction, which is never a good thing. Sometimes these patients actually have a ventricular septal myectomy for actual removal of part of the septum if the patient continues to have outflow obstructions and issues with cardiac output despite maximal medical therapy. We want to maintain adequate fluid balance and to keep in mind any drug that can reduce preload should be used with extreme caution in these patients because, again, it can make the outflow obstruction worse by not having adequate volume in that ventricle. So, for example, in these patients, diuretics and nitrates can be bad news for them as both of them reduce ventricular preload and therefore would increase the outflow obstruction. Now, the similarity here uh, between the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the dilated cardiomyopathy are the last two points here, and that is control of arrhythmias. Antidysrhythmics for atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, very important, except we have to say for this patient group, we would not use digoxin as an antiarrhythmic, correct? Because when you think about digoxin, it has a positive inotropic effect. And anything with a positive inotropic effect is going to potentially increase the outflow obstruction. The last similarity in treatment between the dilated cardiomyopathy and the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is anticoagulation. And that is based on the patient's rhythm. So if the patient has atrial fib, as well as the ejection fraction. So if the patient has an EF less than 30%, you would be looking at anticoagulation in both of those types of cardiomyopathy. Our last type of cardiomyopathy, which by far is the least common type, is restrictive cardiomyopathy. Again, you'll notice for all the three different types of cardiomyopathy, idiopathic always comes up kind of first. For restrictive, we have infiltrative disorders such as sarcoidosis or amyloidosis, um, endomyocardial fibrosis, hemochromatosis, radiation, especially if somebody had, for example, uh, thymus gland radiation, you know, thymectomy with radiation related to Hodgkin's, lymphoma, or connective tissue disorders such as scleroderma. So what we see then in terms of the patients presenting complaints, they come in with chest pain, fatigue, weakness, dyspnea, orthopnea, and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea as well, which really has similarities to the other types of cardiomyopathy. 
Now we can see due to the restriction because of maybe the scarring rating uh, related to radiation that pericardium is restricting movement uh, of the heart. Um, we can see right-sided failure, including things like jugular venous distension, hepatomegaly, peripheral edema, and a right-sided S3, which is something that we would auscultate at the lower left sternal border. Left-sided S3, we would hear more down toward the apex with possible radiation into the axilla. And then our other left-sided sign, in addition to left-sided S3, would be crackles with blood back up into the lungs. So our first treatment has to be aimed at managing the underlying and treating the underlying cause. Steroids can be used, for example. Oxygen to keep the SAD at least equal to or greater than 95% or at the patient's typical baseline. ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, vasodilators, diuretics, and inotropes depending upon the patient's presentation. These patients also can have issues with atrial fibrillation. So antiarrhythmics for atrial fibrillation will also be important. Um, also amiodarone, possibly for ventricular arrhythmias. If the patient has an AV block, they may even need a, a pacemaker. Anticoagulation, again, for patients with EF less than 30% to prevent systemic emboli, and then also transplantation. It depends upon where we're seeing the restriction. Is the restriction in the pericardium, the restriction to ventricular contraction and um, filling and emptying, Maybe we have to remove the pericardium. Maybe we do a pericardial window. Or is there an actual infiltrative fibrotic process of the heart muscle itself that is serving as a restriction? So again, thankfully, restrictive cardiomyopathy is the least common, but also very deadly. All three of them are definitely very deadly. Well, guys, this is the end of episode 18. I thank you very much if you stayed all the way till the end. Again, head over to my website, khoppypresents.com in order to subscribe, as well as head over to my Facebook page and answer the CCRN question of the day. And that is at khoppypresents. And then remember the online CCRN review is coming to you in September and if you would like me to come to your hospital or speak in front of your uh, nursing group, I would love to do that either in person or virtually. Just head over to my website to get my contact information. Thank you so much, everybody, for hanging in there through this whole podcast episode. And I will see you next time where we're going to talk about inflammatory heart issues. So endocarditis, myocarditis, and pericarditis. Thanks much and have a great day. Bye-bye.